It's the start of a new liturgical year, and Bishop Frank is going to give us his reflections on Advent. Today on Let Me Be Frank. But first, His Excellency recaps the fall USCCB General Assembly, and we'll hear his thoughts especially about the Eucharistic document that was overwhelmingly approved by all the bishops. You are not going to want to miss this one. Keep your radio right here at 1350 AM or keep listening on your phone on the Veritas mobile app. Gosh, if you still don't have the app, go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com and download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app today. We're very grateful to Foundations and Faith for sponsoring Let Me Be Frank. During the Advent season, we hold up a light to the St. Francis Xavier Fund for Missionary Parishes. This fund strives to alleviate the financial burdens of urban churches that exhibit strong leadership and outstanding missionary outreach. This partnership empowers pastors to focus on ministries instead of issues with their facilities. To support this essential work, visit foundationsinfaith.org to donate. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. All right, here we go. Welcome back, everybody. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, and happy Advent to you and to our listeners, right? We're on our way to Christmas. Yes, amen. There we go. Hallelujah. We survived Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, and uh, this, I mean, it's been a particularly couple busy weeks for you. So you, yes. uh, you had, you hosted Thanksgiving. Yes. I before. Lived. <laughs> <laughs> before that. God's love. Yeah, before right. that was the conference. Baltimore. Every, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, co- the conference in Baltimore, which was off of Zoom and back in person. Mm-hmm. Nobody, I'm guessing, showed up accidentally in sweatpants <laughs> as a holdover no, no, from Zoom. No, God, no. <laughs> no, but, but it was interesting. It was an interesting dynamic. Baltimore was very, first of all, it was only 233 bishops. So we were missing at least 40 or 50 bishops. Oh, wow. And a number of them had medical issues that they were not there. Either surgeries or um, exposure to COVID or COVID. So it's not an insignificant amount that was missing, that were missing because of, you know, extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, was there a Zoom option for them or, or they just couldn't? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. No, there was not. Now there's a voting option. Okay. So for example, if in the, in the items that require two thirds of the body voting in favor for recognitio, if we didn't achieve two-thirds of the total amount of bishops, not present, the total amount, it, there, there would be a, a, a mailing, a, a ballot sent to them by mail Got to it. fill in the quorum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. And then the other is, the other is you know, in Baltimore, there were, there were many protesters of all different types. Yes. And the majority of them stayed in the hotel. So they were, they were at, you know, in the restaurants or at breakfast or in the elevators and on the, you know, in the corridors and all the rest. And I must confess, I, all my encounters 
who were very polite, very pleasant. There was no acrimony. There was nothing I saw, nothing I was part of that firsthand. Nor did I hear any stories of that. People were saying that they were praying for us. Oh, wow. Beautiful. And of course, they were still protesting outside and calling us, um, you know, lots of bad things. But I mean, but it's nice to at least we could we could pray for each other, you know. So yes. It, it was it was a different sort of meeting, without a doubt. Okay, mm-hmm. but probably uh, you know one of the things you said before you went to Zoom was that um, there are side conversations that are very helpful in not just in advancing and the discussions, but um, also just in getting to know each other. And right. and you got back to that, right. Right. The other thing, too, is this is just my own personal observation, and maybe this is more self-revelatory than it is anything to do with my brother bishops, but my sense was that the meeting was subdued, and some, some were suggesting that it is because we began with the morning of prayer and adoration, which I think is tremendous. We should do mm-hmm. that every time we meet. But I don't think it was just that. I think you could sense in the room that a lot of bishops feel um, burdened, like beaten up Hmm. from COVID and everything that has happened these last few years and all the hard decisions that were made and all of the challenges that have arisen from it. And they're no different from anybody else feeling beaten up. You know, we all have been beaten up in one way, shape or form. Yeah. But, but I could, and maybe I'm mis, misreading it, but my intuition told me that there was, there was, there was a lot of exhaustion in the room. Hmm. Right? So I think the prayer was important, extremely important. In fact, it was probably the most important thing we did in the whole meeting, is to gather together to do that. But yeah. um, either way, I mean, life goes on, and please God, you know, recovery continues. And the yeah. high point of the meeting was the, the Eucharistic document. Right? Yes. Yeah. And that's what made most of the news as well. Correct. And, you know, it's called the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the church. And, you know, there's an old saying, um, I like to eat sausage. I don't like to watch it being made. Right? <laughs> and this is a perfect example of that, Right. Yeah. The end product, I think, was excellent, is excellent. You've read it. Yes. I've read it. I, I counsel everyone who's listening to the podcast to read it. I believe it's on the USCCB website. I think it's only about, what, 40? It's, no, it's 58 it's articles, mm-hmm. right? It's 20-some-odd pages, double-spaced. It's not a long read, Yep. right? It's gone through many iterations, my understanding is there were over a thousand interventions from bishops for feedback that occurred before we even met. It was substantial revisions even before we met. And then the Committee on Doctrine spent a good amount of time fielding other revisions that bishops were proposed. And I think it strengthened the document. Yeah. I think it's extremely clear. And the fact that 222 bishops of the 230, whatever it was that were there, voted for it, um, is clear. I mean, yeah. I voted for it. It, it, this, it. This document is clearly the teaching of the Catholic faith, period. Unequivocal. So why others voted against it, the few that voted against it, could be a thousand reasons. That's for them to, to think through. But, <clears throat> but we do have to remember the history of how we got here. It's like the making of the sausage. 
which was a bit unfortunate, right? Because even in the secular media, uh, it, it, it was characterized as the bishops, quote unquote, ducking the question about Biden, right? Which then gives it a flavor that the document is not worth reading or somehow has failed to miss the mark, which is not true at all. So I encourage everyone to read it. And then you will understand why I think it is a very important teaching. It's a very important document. Um, if we had to do it all over again, I would have prayed for the same document, but done differently. And that is what, if you remember, I, we spoke about, I don't know how long ago, about why I objected to the process the way it was being done, precisely for this reason. Right. Because from the beginning, I had intuited that they're not going to name any particular person in the document, even though there's an element that wanted that, right? Because like you and I talked about before we went on the air, I mean, there are going to be different ages with different people in, in political life, civil life, social life, pop culture, all the rest of it, that are going to fall in the category that may, may be doing or espousing positions that would certainly cause scandal if they received Holy Communion. So you have to talk to the theory and then apply it to the circumstance. Yes. But the, but the other is the Eucharistic revival that Bishop Cousins presented and the parent committee of the subcommittee on the catechism is, um, is working on. And that Eucharistic revival is really meant to focus the whole church's attention on this central mystery of the Eucharist. So in a sense, this document is the opening document of the revival. And that I think is the proper context for the, for the document. That's the context that makes sense, most sense, right? Yeah. And that revival is going to have a diocesan phase, a parish phase, and a national phase. And the national phase is going to culminate in a National Eucharistic Congress, which we have not had in, oh my goodness, maybe 50 years, maybe more at this point. And it's going to be in Indianapolis in June of 2024, you know, gathering 80, 90,000 people together, almost like a World Youth Day event yeah. around the mystery of the Eucharist. But the whole point would be to engage the three transcendentals, so the first is the truth. So what is it we believe? So this document clearly outlines that. It's also to engage the transcendental of beauty, that is, how do we celebrate the mystery of the Eucharist, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, right? And that is going to have, this is going to have a very lively discussion because as we've talked about with the, with the, what we used to call the extraordinary form, it was Benedict's intent that the extraordinary form be used alongside the ordinary form to mutually inform each other. And we have to talk about how we can recapture beauty in the celebration and in the very space that we celebrate the Eucharist. Right, that's two. And then the third is goodness, which is the mission aspect, which is talked about in this document. Right? Yes, that that we we enter into the mystery of the Eucharist, not only for our own personal salvation, but, but that we will go on a mission, not only to invite other people to to Eucharist, but to invite them to an encounter with the Lord and salvation in Jesus Christ.
right? So the Eucharistic revival is really based on that. It's going to have like lots of, you, if you heard Bishop Cousins' presentation, if not, it's summarized in, in Catholic news and a few other places. There's just lots of moving pieces here, right? But all focusing on the same. So we in the diocese, we are going to have a Eucharistic Jubilee from Corpus Christi of 2022 to Corpus Christi of 2023. And that will be our participation in the Eucharistic revival. And it's not so much that it's going to be, uh, you know, a thousand new activities. It's going to try to focus our attentions on the things we do that are central to our faith and to do them intentionally, purposefully, to do them, for, for lack of a better word, to do them with a, an eye on reverence, beauty, mission. Because right? we come to Sunday Mass, to the sacrifice of, of the Mass every Sunday. That's the centerpiece of the Jubilee. Nothing else but that. Right? So that's, we have time next year to talk about that. <clears throat> so though, that's really the history and the context of the document. Right? Now, you've read the document, Yes, Steve. Right. So, if I would say to you one thing that struck you, boom, what would you say? It's to me. It was. It was so. I didn't know what to expect. Um, it was so good and really strong. Uh, I thought it was um, comprehensive and edifying in its teaching. Um, it was also pastoral and uh, in, in telling, showing us, you know, explicitly what the Eucharist is. It started out by saying we need to realize that we are in need of salvation. It calls us to conversion. It makes repeated uh, um, calls for us to go to confession. And then, like you said, and then at the end, it launches us out as missionary disciples all throughout. They quote, you know, church fathers, uh, previous church teachings. I saw that a, a Parasita document was, was re referred to there. Mm -hmm. Mother mm -hmm. Teresa... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Carlo Cutis. I mean, I just, I, I just, I really did not expect to enjoy reading it so much, and mm -hmm. I really mm -hmm. did. I really yeah. did. Good, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I mean, uh, section one and section two, I think, are the heart of the dynamic that Catholics need to reflect on. So, section one is gift. Section two is response. All right. So, let's talk about gift. A gift is something graciously offered for the good of the receiver. So Christmas is coming. We're going to buy gifts. If you and I go and buy gifts simply because it's obligation, I got to figure out something and they're going to return it anyway. And so, what's, right? right? And you leave the store receipt in the thing. Then that's not really giving a gift. Yes. Right? A gift is you sit and you intuit what the person may need or deeply desire or can benefit them, and you offer it graciously. They could turn it down if they want, but if it's done with that spirit, they're not gonna turn it down. And therefore, a gift is not a right, right? It's not to be expected, okay? It's a privilege. And I think that's one of the sub- themes in the document that we need to understand. That the gift of salvation that comes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
that comes to us through grace and participation in the mystery and the sacrifice of the, of the Mass is a gift offered to us. So if we're not ready to receive it, if we're not disposed to receive it, if we're not in some way, shape, or form even cognizant that it's a gift that is to be received, then the grace that's poured out of the sacrament cannot have the effect in our lives it is meant to have. It's almost like getting a gift at Christmas, opening, taking the wrapping paper and putting it on the shelf. What good does that do? So we have developed in some quarters this idea that I have a right to go to Holy Communion. And that right is wrong. That view is wrong. No one has a right to the gift of salvation, okay? Now, once you are baptized and confirmed, but particularly when you're baptized, then that leads to the Eucharist. So no one unnecessarily should impede you from both participating in the mystery as well as receiving the mystery. But sin does, which is self-inflicted. So that's your point about the document speaks often about sin and the need of conversion and confession. Because let's honest, let's be honest. Another point to be made. The mystery is not of your making. Okay? Christ does not bend to us. We bend to Christ. And therefore, the offer of the forgiveness of our sins has a grammar to it that we, we either accept or we rebel against. And if you accept it, meaning that there is a divine law, there is a natural law, and there are the commandments God has revealed that should regulate and bind our behavior, and there's truth that we have to give submission of intellect and will to as believers, that stuff is not for the discussion. That is the reality of who God is, who we are, and the, real, and the reality that we're in. So if you or I or anyone purposely breaks the commandments and then thinks I have a right to receive Holy Communion, you see where that's totally wrong? Yes. If it's truly a gift. So... Those individuals who read this document have to read it through the lens of a self-examination. So how disposed am I to receive this gift? How free am I of sin in my life to receive it worthily so that it can have the effect of, of transformation that it is meant to have in my life? Because when you speak of worthiness, there is a subjective and an objective reality there. Subjective, and that is you yourself, I, you, or anyone, needs to examine ourselves before God because our objective behavior may not betray the subjective place we are with God or not with God. So I could do everything right and have a heart made of stone. And only I know that to the extent that I can know it when I examine my conscience and seek forgiveness. Right? On the other hand, you could have a heart that's truly open to God and have behavior in your life 
that is sinful. And therefore, in the end, and that could be for a lot of reasons, and, and in the end, that too needs to be examined before you receive Holy Communion. Because our, in our life of faith, you should be subjectively open. That is, your heart and mind are open to the will of God and the gift of grace, and your behavior matches your intent as best you can to be able to receive it. And nobody receives it completely worthily. So we move towards it, right? We have to work towards it. Let me just quote one line of this. You and I were chatting about the sections on 46-47. All right. In Article 47, it just makes this one, these one, two, two sentences. It says, one is not to celebrate Mass, notice, it's addressed to priests, or receive Holy Communion, which is the priest and the faithful, in the state of mortal sin, without having sought the sacrament of reconciliation and received absolution. As the Church has consistently taught, a person who receives Holy Communion while in a state of mortal sin not only does not receive the grace that the sacrament conveys, right, not opening the box, he or she commits the sin of sacrilege by failing to show the reverence due to the sacred body and blood of Christ. So this is the mystery that we, we live in when it comes to, to Holy Communion. Jesus said, I have come for those who are sick. So it's medicine for the weakness of our life. On the other hand, it has to be received in the state of grace because if you have committed mortal sin, and are closed to grace, it cannot be it can't be medicinal because it will not you will not allow the medicine into your mind, heart, and soul. And like I always say, false choices are very bad things. In this case, the every single Catholic needs to, every time they come to Mass, examine their conscience and and examine their readiness to come to Holy Communion. Always mindful that every, all of us need the medicine, but you have to be willing to take the medicine for the medicine to take effect. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, exactly. Right? Now, the whole controversy with the president and politicians and, uh, and cultural icons and all the rest is their behavior also has the realm of scandal, which the document refers to, right? Because you're either complicit in other people's sins by not changing the laws, or that your behavior can create scandal. So there's an additional level, because Jesus said to those who have more and more is given, same thing for a priest or a bishop. That's why the sexual abuse crisis was such a tremendous wound on the church, because people in leadership should not be acting in ways that are hideously mortally sinful. Right? So that's another level of discernment that has to be made, which is, should be made between the bishop of the person and the person, not in the media. Right? Not in the media. So I think the document has a tremendous 
value for not only the formation of, you know, you and me and all Catholics, but really as a document of self-reflection on how we can allow the grace of the sacrament to permeate deeper and deeper into our lives when we receive it. Like when you go up and you say amen, are you cognizant of what you're saying amen to? To whom are you saying amen to? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what does that really mean to say that? Right? And, and, and how we receive, you know, grabbing the host from my hand. No, no, no. No, you don't grab. It's a gift. Stop. Right? And if you're going to receive in the hand, create the throne for the king of all creation. And if you're going to receive on the tongue, open your mouth and put your tongue out because your tongue is the throne. Not that you're going to hurl the Eucharist into somebody's mouth. Right. Right. They seem like it's inconsequential, but no, it's not inconsequential because yeah. the posture of our lives dictates what we actually think is happening. The, right? the beauty of this document, Excellency, is that it starts with the teachings, the mm -hmm. basic teachings of what everything is, the Eucharist, all that. It, mm -hmm. And it goes to, as you said, what are we saying amen to? It explains all of that. And then it goes to the practical applications. As I mean, it's just, it's very well done. And um, uh, yeah, and anybody, no one, I don't see how anybody can have an argument about this just because it doesn't name specific names. Because if you think it's not tough, read paragraphs 46 to 49. It is right. clear. Um, right, right, it, without a doubt. Because that is the obligation of every believer who will take with trepidation that step forward to encounter the Lord himself. So imagine, for example, Imagine, use your mind's eye, and when you come to Holy Communion, standing before you is Jesus himself. How would you react differently if you saw him with your own eyes than coming forward and looking with your own eyes upon the blessed sacrament that is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? Just as an act of sacred imagination, everyone listening to this podcast, when you and I come up for Holy Communion, just see before you Christ. And you're saying amen, looking him straight in the eye. That is what's going on. Nobody's worthy. Everyone can grow in worthiness for that moment. But his medicine helps us if we're willing to allow the medicine into our life. If we're close to it, even he will not force it upon ourselves. And those who are obstinate in their sin are refusing the medicine. Can't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, that this is a good place for us to take a break. So we will do that. Um, and we're going to come back. And uh, since we're, in, we're just starting Advent now, we'll talk about Advent on the other side mm -hmm. of the break, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is let me. This is let me be frank. Uh, with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be right back.
If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on Veritas Catholic Network. Um, so, uh, Excellency, I, I, I want to make sure uh, you're able to put a bow on the Eucharistic uh, coherence in the document and how we should approach the Eucharist um, before we move on to Advent. It's all tied together anyway, but... Um, One of the things that we talked about in previous podcasts is worth repeating here today as well. Um, I've quoted Archbishop Fulton Sheen before, if you do not act what you believe, you eventually believe how you act. One of many, many of his great sayings. In this case, it's something that I want everyone to reflect on deeply. Because to teach the mystery of the Eucharist to our children is not principally at an intellectual enterprise. Okay, it's an enterprise of beauty first. Then it becomes an intellectual enterprise. And I think um, Father Terry Walsh, who is now the newly installed pastor of Sacred Heart, St. Patrick, on the day of his installation, preached the homily on Corpus Christi. And I hope he does not mind my quoting the story he told. But at the end of his homily, he related an incident that happened at St. John's Basilica in Stanford when Father Walsh was assigned there as a curate. When he tells the story, it was Holy Thursday evening. And as all of us know, at the end of the Mass of the Lord's Supper, he, we have the Eucharistic procession. And of course, at St. John's, it's always beautifully done. Beautiful music, 30 servers, you know, there are two servers with the thoroughbles that are incensing the path of the Blessed Sacrament all around the church. And of course, itself, the space is magnificent, St. John's. Okay. So they're going around in procession. And Father Walsh told the story that there was a moment when the music had paused 
the clanging of the thuribles had stopped and there was silence, like a, a moment of silence as they began to continue to hustle quietly through church with the Blessed Sacrament. And in the midst of that silence, there was one little boy who could be heard as clear as a bell in the whole church say, wow. <laughs> now, that is a little boy who's encountering the transcendental beauty of what's being unfolded before his eyes. Okay. And he asked the question, Father Walsh, what did he see? What did he see? Because for those who are simple and humble of heart, they can see what others cannot see. Like Pilate looking upon Jesus, who was not um, humble of heart, could not see the truth before him. So Father Walsh asked the question, was the boy simply seeing the host? Or in his simplicity, could he perhaps for the first time in his life glimpse the very face of Christ? That we, older, may not have glimpsed the same way. Well, I tell that story, I, th I thought the, the story was extraordinarily beautiful and moving. I, re I repeat it here because that's catechesis of the Eucharist. That teaches the mystery of the Eucharist. A mystery cannot be fully taught in word. So what's the challenge? The challenge is why must a little boy or a little child or you and I have that experience, almost mystical experience, once a year? Why would not our celebration of Mass evoke that wow in every single one of us every, every time we go? It begins with the very simple act of entering into church and acknowledging the Eucharistic Lord. How many times do you and I and anyone else go into Mass or walk across the sanctuary and not reverence the Blessed Sacrament? I've made it purposely now. If anything gets me into heaven, hopefully it's going to be the resolve that I will never do that again in my life, ever, mindlessly, ever again. But why not? genuflect or bow before the Lord. Why? Because the gesture teaches the truth. It's the catechesis of the moment. A little child seeing that doesn't have to understand, doesn't have to be told something extraordinary is happening. He or she knows it. So that's in the document too, is it not? This mm -hmm. very point is in that document. It's yes. that specific, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I just think in the end, we talk about the real presence. The interesting thing too, just for everyone's knowledge, is Bishop Cousins made this point in the committee on evangelization and catechesis. This idea that two thirds of, the, of Catholics do not believe in the real presence may not actually be true. It may not be true. You see, because when you do a survey, depending on how the question is phrased, you may answer in a way that doesn't actually reflect what you believe, but it's the way you interpret the question. So part of the Eucharistic revival 
is they're going to commission another survey of Catholics around the country, this time with much more nuanced and specific questions about the Eucharist, because the general growing consensus is that that is way under-reporting belief, belief that Catholics have in the real presence. Now, that's not to say that they can fully understand or fully explain the real presence, but that they believe that Jesus is truly, really, and substantially present is probably in much larger numbers, percentages, than the 30 or 40% that's being reported by Carrot just a few years ago. Yeah, please God, I hope that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and some of, uh, and, you know, and I, again, you know, I was going to even ask uh, Dr. Han um, last week when we were together in the pub, which I thought was an extraordinary, inter he's an extraordinary individual, um, to his thoughts about that, because surveys are only as good as how the questions are phrased. True, right. Yep. Right. Okay. Anything else on the Eucharist, my friend, did you want to talk about before we go to I Advent? Mean, no, I, I mean, no, let's, I, I would love to hear your, <laughs> well, I mean, because here we are, Advent is a, is such, uh, it's, it's just a, it's just a great season, new liturgical it is, year. It is, it uh, is, it's too short, in my humble opinion, but nobody asks my humble opinion, <laughs> right? Depending on how Christmas lands, it could be as short as three weeks in a day, yeah. Right. And then it's the longest it could be is four weeks. It used to be six weeks before the reform. And in, for example, in some of our Eastern Catholic churches, it is still six weeks. You know, it's interesting. Okay. The origin of these seasons, Advent and Lent, let's talk about Advent particularly, are preparatory seasons for the mysteries, the solemnities in the Lord's life that follow them. So one is the birth of the Lord, incarnation. One is the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord in glory. And they are both penitential. Lent is clearly more emphasized in its penitential nature than Advent. But Advent is penitential. That is why the colors are used similarly. Unfortunately, there are some circles that have de-emphasized the penitential character of Advent. And that's the, one, the first thing I wanna make clear. It's a time of self-examination. It's a time of repentance. And it's a time of, to have our confessions heard, to be ready to receive the gift of the birth of the Savior, the infleshing of love, through reception of his blessed body, blood, soul, and divinity at Christmas Mass. So I'm not sure there are many people who intentionally adopt a penitential practice in Advent. Yeah. But I would suggest it. Not of the same caliber as Lent, but some act of sacrifice and why that's particularly important is because the secular world has overrun Advent with Christmas. My goodness. I was in CVS and they had Christmas decorations before Halloween. Oh my gosh. Uh. Right? And right now, too. I mean, it's creeping all over. People use the good weather to put their Christmas decorations out in Veterans Day weekend. Wow. 
So, so Advent is that, but Advent speaks of the three comings of Christ. So what are they, my friend? Quiz oh. time. Uh, what's, oh, gosh. Okay, the, th- um, the three comings of Christ. Well, one has to be the n- nativity. Right. Uh, um, the second coming? Yep. Two? Uh, the three comings. Would it be the Eucharist? Number three, wow. A plus. <laughs> Once again, you're at the top of the class. <laughs> so you see the connection between the Eucharist and Advent, right? What's the bridge between the historical coming of Christ in Bethlehem that opened the final chapter of salvation history and the historical coming of Christ in the future? at the second coming, what's the bridge? The Eucharist. So what's the sacrament of Advent, in my humble opinion? The Eucharist. So this is the ideal moment for this document to come forward because he comes as food and medicine. I love that image, food, perseverance, strength, courage, medicine, the healing, reconciliation, right? For consolation and peace. So that we can enter into the grace of the first with courage to face the second, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the with the, the last things, mm-hmm. right? In our yes. individual judgment. So Advent is all about opening our eyes and hearts deeper to the presence of Christ in our midst in the Eucharist, number one. But what other ways is Christ present to us? The Vatican Council, I think it was Lumen Gentium, spoke of multiple presences of Christ. So his real presence substantial presence in the Eucharist, but it doesn't mean that he's absent in every other form. So let's let's go through that list. What are some of the ways Christ is present to us? I'll start with one, then you, you take one, okay? The community, the church, is the presence of Christ, where two or three are gathered in my name. So Advent's the time for us to sit back, reflect, do I see, do I meet Christ? each time I come into the community of the church? Do I spend the time to recollect and say, I'm going to the Rosary Society. I'm going to the men's club. I'm going not just to meet the guys in the men's club. I'm not just going for the bagel and coffee. I'm not just going to be taught whatever the talk is going to tell me, but I am meeting Christ here in their midst. Christ is here. Advent is take off the blinders, remember Christ's presence. What about another one? You want to give it a step? Uh, How about um, in his word in sacred scripture? That was was Dr. Hans' point, right? Or last week. is to encounter Christ in his scripture. And the one thing that I think is absolutely essential that he was like, he, he did just a phenomenal job is... To read the scriptures in the heart of the church means it's not just what it's saying to me, 
but what it has said to all believers through the ages. So to pray over Scripture, there's a part of it that's the study of Scripture that can enrich your mind and your heart. Do you go deeper into the, it's like, um, you know uh, uh, you know what a sfugliadella is? No. A sfugliadella is an Italian pastry that's made with those layers and layers and layers of very thin pastry, right? It tastes delicious. It's probably a disaster for your health, but who cares, <laughs> right? Because you can't live forever unless you get to heaven. So what the heck, right? <laughs> so, and... So it's like peeling the sfugliadella. It's like one layer after another, after another, after another. And part of the beauty and richness of the scriptures to encounter Christ is to enter into his age, enter into his culture, enter into the circumstances of his life, because that was the substance that was used for the definitive revelation of the incarnation. So a lot of what is being shared, we miss because we haven't spent the time to learn it. And therefore, it's almost like Christ encountering Christ, but he's cloaked, but he wants to be uncloaked. Advent is the time then, the perfect time, if you want an act of sacrifice or discipline, is to you know, pick up a book of a commentary or the background on the Gospels and pick one Gospel, even the, the nativity of Luke, the stories of, and just read the cultural background, read the commentaries, learn about who is the Caesar Augustus, what does the census tax mean, why was it such an imposition on the Jewish people? Talk about the Magi and astrology in the time of Jesus and the Eastern nations, and I mean all that stuff just, just it's like it blows your mind open. Of all the things that it could mean that you have forgotten, you know. For example, I'm just going to give you one example. Be like unto the children. I was at Mass not long ago when the celebrant, who will go nameless, who was a Jesuit, said something I, had did, not, I did not know. No, I had never learned it. I've never read it in any commentary. But having learned it, having heard it from him, I, I still take a step back and ponder what the Lord really was teaching for he said children in that age were not the sweet lovable cuddly they were non-persons they had no privilege no standing no right they were the, they were the equivalent of nothing so be like unto nothing be like unto the one that the world thinks you are worth nothing and you will find me totally different than be like the children you could hug and kiss and you know and you want to <laughs> yeah but you see the difference yeah advent is the time to learn this to see christ to meet him in a whole new way mm -hmm. uh what are um what what I, I know you love uh the advent calendar you said that a couple weeks I do. ago. I do. I just put it up this morning. I just put it up, <laughs> right? It was a little late, but I put it up and I caught up <laughs> with the little boxes. Yep. You have, do you get the chocolates? No, no, no. Okay. No, I'm going to diet. No. <laughs> um, what, uh, uh, what, are some, what are some devotions that you would recommend to people 
um, you know, with kids, but also people who who don't have kids, you know, just just in general. What what are some things that you can recommend that help us prepare? Well, remember, first of all, every week in Advent has a particular focus in the sacred scripture, whether it's St. John the Baptist, right, or Our Lady, for example. So one of the things would be to raise those individuals up and reflect on their example. It's a very simple way to do it. Um, being the, the, you know, growing up in an Italian house, we've spoken much about the, the fixed points of Lent, so the Immaculate Conception, and then the Christmas Novena, mm -hmm. which starts the O Antiphon. So in a sense, Advent is broken up into three parts. It's the first days of Advent to the Immaculate Conception. It's the Immaculate Conception to the O Antiphons, which is, right, I think the 16th of December, 16th, 17th of December, I, don't, I think it's 16th of December. And then the Christmas Novena to Christmas Eve. So each third has like its own spiritual focus and could have its own project. And then it is sprinkled in between, all right, is you have Our Lady Guadalupe. Yes. For me, St. Lucy. Yeah, oh, yes. Was a huge piece, huge piece, because of sight, of light, right? The winter solstice, Right. Or is it, the, I guess it's the, is it solstice or equinox? I'm showing my ignorance uh, now. I, I don't know. Let's just, <laughs> let's just pick one and pretend we know it, what it is. For let's a, say for, solstice. For a pseudo, if for a pseudo astronomer, it's terrible, right? To make those sort of mistakes. <laughs> it's always room to learn. But, but I think it's the winter solstice. And, and then of course, the mysteries of Christmas, which are the 12 days of Christmas, not the two days of Christmas. Right. Right. So um, could I recommend for everyone to go online? I will do this myself because I misplaced the, the little booklet I have for Christmas Novena. Search for the Christmas Novena and pray it. Hmm. Yeah. What a great way to prepare for the midnight mass, which is now called mass in the night. Since in many places it's not midnight, but it's in the night, sometime in the night. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, so those are some of the things that cross my mind when I think of Advent. But of all of them, I, I have to tell you, the lasting effect from last week's podcast for me is I think for this year, my focus is going to be on the scriptures and using that encounter with Christ. And I'm going to be focusing in on the nativity narrative. So that when I hear it proclaimed or sung, right, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I will have the tools at hand with God's grace to encounter the Christ child in a totally new way. That's what I'm praying for. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do yeah. for Advent, my friend? Anything? Oh, gosh. Well, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread um, a book called Rescued by Father John Ricardo. It's his exposition of the charisma. So it's not, you know, it, but it, that's quick. Um, but I also uh, wanted to pick up, um, there's a book called uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary by a guy named Brent mm -hmm. Petrie. And he walks through the Old Testament to show how Mary is the new Eve, the Ark of the Covenant, the mother of God. And I just thought it was appropriate because, you know, Mary's expecting 
right now <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to give birth soon to God. And so I just, right. but uh, uh, there's, I mean, I, you know, these books are about the gospels um, and, mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the scripture, but uh, I think there's n- no repl- replacement for the scriptures themselves because that's the direct oh, no, word no, of no. God. <laughs> without a doubt. No, absolutely. Without a doubt. They're all, oh, they're all for preparation, right? You know, it's interesting. Again, this says a lot about me, I suppose. Um, all prayer reflects back on us. But in the last few years, maybe because of all the, the challenges and sufferings we have had, both as a church and perhaps in individual lives, the image of Our Lady more animates my prayer life in Lent than Advent. Hmm. And it is not the image of the Mother of God. It's the image of Our Lady of Sorrows. Yeah. And precisely because, in the end, the birth of Jesus, right, is, is... and all the events that surround the birth of the Lord were also a great suffering for Our Lady. I mean, to give birth in poverty, to be away from family, when ordinarily in Jewish culture, you, all the women of the family would be there to be of help. She had no one to help her. All right. Then to be cast as a refugee in a different country for the sake of her son that she knew was unique, but still had not fully understood what the angel meant, that would come over time when she saw him grow, right? And, and mature. And to be subject to financial constraints, Joseph leaving his livelihood to a country whose language she didn't know, customs she didn't know. Um, so this tremendous amount of suffering that sometimes gets lost in the jingle bells and the lights and all the gifts of Christmas. Yeah. Right? But it's clearer in Lent. It's clearer. That has resonated in my heart for the last few years. And precisely because, you know, as you get older, the cost of discipleship becomes much clearer. At least for me, it has become much clearer. The cost. And that's a good thing, to pay a cost. It's a very good thing. So it's ironic that, you know, and I love Our Lady, as you know, it's John the Baptist seems to animate my religious imagination and prayer more in Advent than Our Lady. Our Lady has risen in Lent. Hmm. That may I may I may need a whole new spiritual director then. <laughs> that's the case, but that's basically that's basically where I'm at. <laughs> uh, Excellency, let's let's take our final break for the day and uh, come back on the other side with a listener question. This is let me be frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, a kind of apropos question came in uh, this week. So here it is. It says, Bishop Caggiano, many thanks to you and Steve for your podcast. It's a blessing. I have a family member who only attends Mass on the holidays. With Christmas approaching, I know we'll be at midnight Mass together again. How do you suggest I tell him he should not receive communion? Yeah, see, that is uh, an issue many people face. 
during the holy days of Christmas and Easter. First thing we have to recognize that it is a very good thing that this person continues to come on the holy days, right? So there is still some connection to the church and that we can build on. My counsel is this, it's not what you have to say, it's how you say it that makes all the difference in the world. And not knowing the particulars of who the person is or the person's age or the rest uh, or the relationship where you are his mother or father or uncle or grandfather, whatever it may be, I think you have to discern how best to say it so that it is couched with um, the Lord wants you and you yourself coming at Christmas. Hopefully we'll find it to be an experience that feeds you. And therefore come every Sunday so the Lord can feed you directly. In other words, not so much make it a prohibition, but help him to understand that if you're not coming every Sunday, then even if you receive Holy Communion, it would not have the effect it is meant to have. It's Again, it's the medicine that can't penetrate because you're not in the state of grace to be able to allow it to do that. So I would, I would simply put it in these terms. I'm it's so great to, that you're here, that you're coming with us. And please remember that reception of Holy Communion is a reception of, of the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus to those who, who are disposed to receive it. And that presumes you come every week. So why don't we talk about making this the beginning of that for you? And I'm here to help you. I'm here to go with you. I'm here to help you. And if you find that coming to this church is not feeding you, there are other experiences around the diocese because the, the Lord is waiting to enter into you. But you have to take the first step in order to receive it. Something in those terms yeah. that makes it more of an invitation. Just, right? Yeah. It may I, work. I noticed you, the way you put that was in, was in a loving way in the context of a relationship with that, which it sounds like the listener has. Um, right. right. What would you think about, I mean, even like giving them the, the document that was just published and saying, hey, I just read this. I love it. You might yeah. like it too. I, mean, I, I think that's know. a tremendous idea. It's a tremendous idea. Absolutely. But the other is, quite frankly, I think if this goes back to the beauty. This, this young person, if, it is, if he or she is young, is searching. They're coming. So if you enter into the mystery and the mystery wins your heart, you have won 90% of the battle. So how is mass going to be celebrated? How are the people going to be disposed? How does the person accompanying this person enter into church? For if the person genuflects to the Blessed Sacrament, already this person will intuit, this is not like any other gathering. Yeah. That is all part of the working of grace to move a heart to say, yes, 
Yes, I warn him. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And we would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thank you for again for an awesome teaching and conversation. And oh, my pleasure, my friend. My pleasure. My pleasure. I always enjoy our conversations. You're a great person to have a, a, a dialogue with, really. You're the star of the show. I'm the only fan. I'm like, uh, what's his name? You know, Johnny Carson. Who was the guy on the corner? I forget his name now. Ed McMahon. Oh, please. (laughs) You're right. Oh, gosh. On that note, you're the one who can give the blessing, not me. Yes, true. Would you please? (laughs) In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Spirit accompany us on this Advent journey, that as we come to Christmas Day, that we may, with minds and hearts renewed, receive the great gift of our salvation in Jesus. And may you bless us, for we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next week, my friend. See you, Excellency. 